Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, children of the night. A few weeks ago, I had mentioned Steven Soderbergh's Unsane. I did get a chance to watch it, and I overall enjoyed it. I did mention to you my skepticism about the film being shot entirely on the camera of an iPhone. I had thought that it would be an artistic constraint that would be either a pretentious choice or maybe just a choice that might bring a few more ticket purchases in for the novelty of it. I think that my mind has changed on that. The absence of a high-quality Hollywood camera does lend to a strange feeling to the film that adds to the display of the unfolding of the plot. I also did enjoy the confirmation that anyone can make a good movie with what they have. The film isn't perfect. The two complaints I have, well, the first is perhaps minor, and that's the title. I think that the name Unsane is worth an eye roll. The second one is a bit more fundamental, and I can't express to you without spoiling a large piece of the plot, but the circumstances that bring a major character into the story seem to ask the audience to suspend a tremendous amount of disbelief. I'd recommend this one to you. Let's hear some stories. First up, John Cleworth. John Cleworth mainly writes, but not exclusively, for children and young adults, but has had over 50 short horror stories for adults published in the independent press under the pseudonym John Saxton, including a collection of adult horror stories entitled Bloodshot. His latest short story, Amelia's Labyrinth, can be found as a podcast in Season 7 of the Wicked Library. His first novel, Firestorm Rising, is a chilling tale inspired by a visit to a gothic graveyard one dark, rainy day. His second novel, Demons in the Dark, is a horror story broadly aimed, written for the young adult market. John believes that horror should be scary, but fun, and loves to lace his stories with humor. For further details and sneaky previews of these, along with John's future projects, please visit his website, www.johncleworth.com. Link will be in the show notes. Lend me your ears for John Cleworth's The Elusive Flame, originally appearing in Whispers of Wickedness way back in 2004. Broken glass litters the desolate back street like splintered souls. A cold wind animates the lifeless, crumpled sheets of newspaper, 
a KFC carton bleeding ketchup wounds, a vodka bottle, discarded hypodermic needles. Blood and snot form a suitable pavement painting a few feet from the buzzing halogen street lamp. The corpse is slumped at the base of the lamppost. Further up the street, a cheap neon sign proclaims, Rembrandt's Tattoo Parlor. The red letters flicker in their efforts to attract. A large, ugly moth batters itself repeatedly against the window of Rembrandt's. It seeks the elusive flame that will orchestrate its destruction. Darkness wraps itself like poison around the dead of night. The street lamp stands defiant. Rembrandt's squats supreme. A low bass rhythm wafts in and out on the sepulchral breeze. From miles away, this arterial pulse tilts the hammer and anvil of the cadaver's inner ear. Its eyelids twitch. It was once beautiful. Now, its swollen and puffy face, multicolored in bruising, with the left cheek hanging down in a gashed flap, sits beneath a blood-matted strawberry-blonde hairdo. Its clothing is torn, revealing too much flesh for modesty. The abusive gang is long gone, holed up now in a stinking bedsit, shooting up and having a laugh about it. Three gangsters with attitude. The dead girl's eyelids twitch again. One eye opens, staring wide. The other is too bloated and glued with caked blood. Her limbs stiffly stir. She draws her bare feet beneath her. Her standard street girl issue stilettos are several yards away. Stiltedly, she rises to her feet, straightens her ravaged body. Rembrandt's sign burns brighter. The moth hammers, frenzied against the dirty, smeared glass. The street lamp sputters out. The bass music rides in louder on the strengthening wind. The night smells of excrement and death. She slowly turns and begins to limp towards the tattoo parlor. It is a short distance to cover and she is at the door within twenty rammings of the moth. It ricochets around her skull, blind and abysmal. She captures it in a swift hand and she crushes it. Its fragile membranes fall to the ground becoming partially stuck in a discarded kebab, otherwise taken by the now gale-force wind. She pushes the door to Rembrandt's, and it opens easily inwards. Inside the dingy room, the air is thick with the smoke of cheap cigars. The only light that pierces the darkness emits blurrily from the neon sign in the window. A small, sleek figure can be perceived. Seated in a low swivel chair, plumes of bluish-gray fog rise from the stubby, fat stogie in his fingers. Unseen, his eyes flicker behind thick, circular spectacles. He absorbs each detail of the devastated figure in the doorway. He is not shocked. He sees her dead eyes. He sees behind her dead eyes. He sees into her dead head.
Unmoved, he is able to view what she has seen. He sees visions without sound. Youths, gesturing, lewdly, closing in, grinning with evil intent. Dirty hands reaching for her, booted feet kicking out at her. He sees, as from her eyes, the first sprays of her blood illustrate the night. He sees their faces, etches them in his memory. He blinks, long and slow, like an owl, and turns away. He rummages on a metal tray. He picks up his electric needle. The corpse lumbers forward and flops into a tattered armchair by the man. He flicks a switch and the needle erupts into life. His hand is warm against the tomb-cold flesh of the dead thing's arm. He directs the needle at the lifeless left forearm and begins his work. The poor lighting doesn't impede his progress. The needle weaves and hums in the dull crimson glow. The corpse's eyes flash wildly in the electric iridescence. Minutes pass, and the open door admits an icy breeze, accompanied by the familiar distant pulse music, which ebbs in and out like the tide. The tattooist finishes his task. The images of three young men adorn the dead girl's skin. They look depraved and strangely animated. The girl's yellowing eyes stare into the night as she staggers to her feet and proceeds with staccato movements across the room to a tall, metal cupboard. Slowly, deliberately, she turns the handle and opens the door. Blindly but accurately, she reaches in and retrieves a large glass jar with her right hand. With her left hand, she removes the glass stopper. She turns and faces the tattooist. Rembrandt smiles kindly and, almost imperceptibly, nods his head. The beating music comes in on a new surge of wind, as if a ghostly volume control has been turned up. The dead girl extends her left arm, freshly tattooed with the writhing faces. The clear liquid in the jar ripples as she raises the vessel and begins to tilt it over her arm. As the first drops touch the inked skin, the flesh begins to smoke, sizzle, and emit an acrid stench. Ghastly screams, animalistic in timber, like the bellows of field beasts in torment, rattle around the parlor. The howls come from the disintegrating tattoo faces as they contort with agonized expressions. The screaming stops quickly. The bone of the girl's arm is cleanly exposed. Rembrandt gazes at her, his face impassive. She replaces the vessel and closes the cupboard. She turns to look at Rembrandt. Her dead eyes glimmer. Slowly, life returns to them. Muscles and tendons reform over the bone of her arm. Veins and arteries rejoin. Flesh knits itself over these. And her skin returns to its perfection. The hideous hanging flap of her riven cheek is gone, healed. 
bruises fade, blood disappears. The ragged, blood-stained clothes fall to the floor. She is glorious in her perfection. She exudes life, oozes power. Rembrandt stirs. The street lamp outside sighs back into radiance. In a dingy bedsit, what was once three drug addicts begins to set on the needle and logger-strewn floor. Stinking sludge, in which even the bones have liquefied, forms a weird carpet. The bodies are as hopelessly mulched as if they had been submerged in a vat of acid. The girl stands beneath the flickering street lamp. She is watched by a lone male from the shadows between the slums across the street. He intends to have her tonight, and all she'll get is the sharp edge of his blade. He emerges from the alley, almost an extension of the shadows themselves. The silly cow doesn't know what's coming. The wind gathers, and litter races around his ankles like a worrying dog. In the periphery of his vision, he detects the stuttering of a neon light. Inside the building, Rembrandt's face is illuminated by this light. The tattooist smiles. That was John Cleworth's The Elusive Flame as read by Alex Ford. When Alex Ford isn't rocking around the nation in her band Ford Theater Reunion, she's holed up in her guest room following a different passion, recording audiobooks and editing manuscripts. An avid reader and writer, she delights in helping people bring their creativity to life. You can check out her exploits, Mystery, Bruises, and A Most Handsome Cat on Facebook or Instagram. Links will be in the show notes. Thank you, Alex. Our second story of the night comes to us from J. Ashley Smith. J. Ashley Smith is a British-Australian writer of dark fiction and other materials. J. was born in Cambridge, UK, and spent his childhood hiding with imaginary companions in the foundations of an Edwardian townhouse. He studied film and creative writing, then lost 15 years to the British indie music scene, clothed in unfashionable sweaters releasing unpopular records. He now lives with his wife and two sons in the suburbs of North Canberra, gathering moth dust, tormented by whispers from the hills, hoist, and the desolation of telegraph wires. Two of Jay's short stories have won national competitions. Old Growth won the SQ Mag Story, Quest Short Story Contest 2016. On the Line won the Australian Horror Writers Association Short Story Competition 2015. Others have appeared, or are forthcoming, in Dimension 6, Bourbon Pen, and Midnight Echo. Our last meal was first published in the Anthology of Australian Horror, In Sunshine Bright and Darkness Deep, Australian Horror Writers Association, 2015. Listen with me to J. Ashley Smith's Our Last Meal. It used to be our favorite lookout. 
Our hangover lookout, Sally called it. We always got trashed the night we arrived and, the next day, would roll out of the cabin before dawn, woken by kookaburras and the first crystal shards of hangover. We'd slog our way through the rainforest, sweating poison, Sally forever in the lead, boasting how she'd walked this track since she was a toddler, and couldn't I keep up? At the top, we'd stretch out on the coarse rock and share the same unchanging picnic. Crackers, cheese and cucumber, sliced with a knockoff Swiss Army penknife, all rinsed back with the warm dregs of last night's bottle of white. And there we would lose ourselves, gazing out across the canopy and the hazy blue exhalations that rose above it into the deeper blue of the sky. It could never be the same without her. I knew that. But something had drawn me back here to spread out that same simple lunch and stare blankly at those same treetops. I'd invested in a bona fide Swiss army knife since then and was washing down the food with water instead of wine. I never drank because Sally did. But whatever it was I had hoped to recapture remained hidden or had never been there to begin with. There had been a storm in the night and the rainforest that morning steamed, lush with the smells of life giving birth to itself without cease. The foliage all about me resonated with the calls of whipbirds and whistlers, the rustlings of scrub turkeys, and of other creatures too innumerable to distinguish or identify, and of creatures too small or silent to acknowledge. My feet were swollen from the walk and aching, Trickling streams of ants converged on the cracker crumbs and flakes of cheese. I unlaced my boots and tugged them off, surprised to find my left sock was dark and soaking. As I peeled it off, my hand came away smeared with a watery redness. I rolled up my trouser cuff to uncover the wound and found instead a leech, bloated and quivering. It was as round as my thumb and twice as long, shiny black with streaks of orange. Even as I watched, it seemed, with each of its hideous pulsations, to be getting larger. I'm ashamed to admit it now, but I was so overcome with revulsion that I panicked. In an instant I was on my feet, kicking at the air. I wanted it off me, but I couldn't bring myself to touch it. I flicked at it spastically, trying to brush it away but the leech held on, its engorged body flapping against my calf like a bloody balloon. It would have drawn some odd looks had there been anyone around to see it. A bearded young man hopping barefoot on the rocks, arms flailing against an outstretched leg, while his twisted mouth strangled noises of disgust. I can laugh about it now, but at the time I had no sense of how daft I must have looked. Only the hysterical thought voicing itself over and over. It is drinking me. In the end, the leech just let go. Engorged and rippling, it writhed among the remains of my ritual lunch. Something welled up in me then. Something I could not contain. I picked up my boot by the toe and slammed the heel down on the leech. That first blow had no effect, so I struck again and again, and again, and again. I felt the reverberation in my arm each time the soul struck rock. I was grunting, jaw clenched, teeth grinding. When I finally stopped, I was panting, almost in tears. 
There was nothing left of the leech but a twist of black, like a burnt elastic band, and a burst of red the size of my palm pooling in the striations of the rock. My blood. All the way back to the cabin I was consumed with disgust. The walk seemed longer than usual and more perilous. I recoiled from every frond that brushed my calves, jumped at every drop of water that fell from the canopy above. The rainforest teemed with life forms of every sort, both real and imagined. Every path was crisscrossed with the giant webs of orb spiders. Every leaf was crawling with the black bodies of sucking, biting parasites. I swept and lashed at every sensation, on my arms, my neck, my shins. Every exposed patch of skin seemed to be alive with creeping, crawling things. Before I finally passed through the gates of the National Park, I had removed three more leeches from my boots. It was an enormous relief to feel the concrete beneath me again. Man-made, impervious, reassuringly lifeless. But the disgust stayed with me. It was a feeling I knew well, however indirectly. In the months before she left, I had seen it creep across Sally's face like a shadow, seen it pull down the edges of her mouth, seen it in the way she turned from me, as though unable to bear the sight of me any longer. It's like living with a black hole, she had said. And then, I hate who I am with you. And then, you're draining the life from me. It made no sense to me. I heard the words, but it seemed she was talking about some other person, someone I did not recognise and could not identify with. In the time we'd been together, I'd done all I could to become the perfect partner. I was dedicated to her constant happiness, moulding myself precisely to each contour of her personality. Every quality she disliked in a man, vanity, aggression, jealousy, protectiveness, I erased from myself as though they had never been. Her likes became mine, her interests and opinions too. I cooked her favourite foods, met up with her friends and her favourite bars, massaged her feet to her favourite movies. I wanted everything to be perfect for her, for every one of our moments together to be a festival of worship, a religious devotion with her, the central deity. But as I came close to that idea of perfection on which I'd staked everything, Sally began to change. That shadow fell across her eyes. That twist appeared at the corner of her mouth. Finally, there came the looks of unmistakable contempt. But I love you, I had said. You love something, she said, but it isn't me. And you, to you, I couldn't bring myself to say it. Do I love you? she said, and looked at me as though at a complete stranger. What's there to love? Sally and I continued to live together for some weeks after that, but we were just bodies drifting through a vacuum, all coldness and silence and the mounting fear of suffocation. I went through the motions, carrying on as though nothing had changed, perhaps believing that those words could be undone or overpowered by the simple repetition of established habits. But the change was written on her face. The twist grew into a sneer, and, soon enough, I had to accept that it was over.
Within days of moving out, Sally started seeing her ex, the one that I'd worked so hard to be nothing like. Shortly after, she set off for Europe on some pseudo-existential jaunt, to find herself, perhaps, or to put as much distance as she could between her and me. I thought I'd made myself exactly what she needed me to be, but in the end, it just wasn't enough, or wasn't what she had wanted in the first place. The cabin was a basic affair, characterised by its size and lack of amenity. Two small bedrooms, a smaller bathroom and combined kitchen-living room were compressed together beneath an old tin roof. It stood empty most of the year, so it had become a home to every imaginable sort of vermin. I was kept awake each night by the rattle of possums across the roof and the skittering of rats in the walls, then deprived of sleep past dawn by the scratch of claws on tin and the cacophony of shrieks as cockatoos drove smaller parrots from the feeder. The back deck looked out upon the garden, a wild tangle of rainforest from which, at night, the faraway lights of the Gold Coast could be seen, shimmering through giant fronds of cycads and bursts of frangipani, like a hallucination. The cabin and surrounding block had been in Sally's family for years. Her parents had bought it before she was born, in the carefree early days of their marriage. It was unique on this road of stately Queenslanders, of expensive and manicured gardens, a little island of wildness that her parents swore always to keep intact, never to develop. It had been their family retreat throughout Sally's childhood, and later, when she and her brother were at uni, it had been their escape, a free space for their group's riotous weekends or an intimate one for their lovers. Her brother married and moved to Perth, and her parents had followed to be closer to their grandchildren. For some time, Sally and I had been the cabin's only visitors. In the first flush of our romance, we had come often, whiling away the days in blissful aimlessness. We would walk the local bush trails, loving the exhaustion and the closeness that came with it. Long and passionate siestas and the heaviness of afternoon would drift into boozy dinners on the veranda, watching the night descend into the spatter of lights that marked the coastline. In those happier times, the cabin was our haven, a cocoon in which the best parts of ourselves felt safe to emerge and love, with all its possibilities, could grow without restraint. In the cold last days, however, the only retreats we made were into our own private worlds, and the cabin remained empty. We still walked, but only to work, and separately, immersed in the gloom that always followed our uneasy breakfasts. Work was a barely tolerable distraction that evaporated into afternoons of restless daydreams and morbid gazing. Sally, at least, still had the boozy dinners, just no longer with me. She would come home drunk, caustic. Nights descended into bitterness and silence, the unspoken conflict that defined the boundaries of our relationship and the wilderness that lay beyond it. When the taxi dropped me off a week ago, the cabin was almost obscured by the encroaching garden, now as dense and unkempt as the beard I'd let grow since Sally left. I had taken the key from its hiding place beneath the deck, peeling back the wispy vortices of abandoned funnel whips. Inside, the air was stale and damp and had a faint tang that I later came to associate with rat droppings. The draining board was still stacked with plates and glasses from our last meal here, now sticky with dust. A half-drunk bottle of wine had turned to vinegar by the sink. 
When I arrived that day, I did not yet know what compelled me or why I had come. The cabin held me in a kind of relentless gravity, drawing me towards some notion of completion that, however vague, was left unsatisfied by Sally's parting. Perhaps I felt that something had been left behind here, some ghost of the person I had once been, or perhaps some essence of those happier times that I might reabsorb by simple proximity. It's possible there were other reasons, but if so, they were obscure. On some days it felt as though I was here to say goodbye to Sally, to finally let go of whatever it was we had shared and move on with my life. On others, I felt I was here to get closer to her, to connect with her once again through spaces she had once occupied and objects she had once handled, to rekindle an intimacy between us that existed now in only inanimate things and in emptiness and silence. Although I knew that I would not be disturbed as long as she was in Europe, I often fantasised about surprising Sally here in some way, returning home from her travels, seeking solitude in her old retreat, or perhaps a romantic escape with some new man. These daydreams whiled away the long afternoons and left me with an unusual sense of calm and a feeling one might almost describe as joy. How would she react to find me here, I wondered. What strange shape might that encounter take? The wound left by the leech continued to bleed for many hours after I returned. The thin fluid streamed from my calf so profusely that I ran through the cabin's entire supply of band-aids to staunch it, replacing them each time the blood soaked to the edges of the dressing. It also began to itch, a maddening, tingling sensation that gnawed away at me, no matter how I tried to distract myself from it. Between the itching and the incessant changes of dressing, that tiny puncture consumed my attention well into the afternoon. My mind came back again and again to the incident with the leech, the memory growing in vividness and intensity as I turned it over upon itself. And the more I dwelt on it, the more abstracted my deliberations became. Away from the rainforest, where every frond dripped with the threat of tangible parasites, my thoughts spiralled into a vortex of vague anxieties and phobic imagery. It was as though the heightened clarity of this memory was at the expense of a context that moored it in reality. Underlying everything, feeding and growing fat on my obsession, disgust was coiled inside me like an unnameable black thing, writhing in my belly, gagging in my throat, and pulling back the corners of my mouth into a grimace. At first, this nameless revulsion was directed at the leech, but as the colour drained from inside the cabin, and the blue-grey dusk enveloped me, the feeling began to shift, and I grew disgusted with myself. On the one hand, my feelings toward the leech seemed completely justified, a primal horror that was only natural considering its grotesque otherness. It was repulsive, a hideous creeping parasite, an alien, a thief. Its very nature seemed an offence to warm-blooded creatures of every species. Its foul body, spineless and glistening. Its sickening gait, puppet-like and ludicrous. Its means of survival, stealthy, deceitful, insidious. Just picturing it made me boil with anger all over again. And it was this anger that troubled me most of all, that kept me picking over the scene again and again, scratching at it and worrying it like the sore spot on my calf. 
How could I dare feel disgust at a creature simply for feeding on me, when my response had been to take its life? How much blood had the leech taken from me? And how much did I have to spare? Surely I could have shared that little bit of myself for the sake of a life. The tension between these conflicting extremes bound me in an unresolvable and quite intolerable state of agitation well into the night. As I lay awake in the small bed that Sally and I had once shared, I was overcome with pity for the leech and with remorse for what I had done to it. Like words of spite that erupted unbidden into one of my few arguments with Sally, or the many times I let slip something about myself that did not hold with the image I had cultivated, I couldn't take this back, no matter how much I may have yearned to. I could not undo what I had done or return the leech to life. Knowing this, and finding no possible way to right it, was an agony that oppressed me like a storm that wouldn't break. The rats that night were particularly bold. I had left cupboard door open in the kitchen, and I could hear their tiny feet skittering amongst the boxes of cereal and open packets of crackers. When I first arrived at the cabin, I had found a rat by the garden tap, the body of one at least, flat and completely desiccated. I knew the cabin was peppered with unsprung traps and boxes of poison, their lids peeled back to reveal the deadly green candy inside. My heart had gone out to this poor creature, who, believing it to be food, had filled her belly with the poison. It must have taken days to parch her from within, sucking all the moisture from her body. She had died beside the dripping tap, no doubt in a desperate, doomed attempt to slake her undying thirst. Before unpacking the meagre supplies I'd brought with me, I'd gone round to every corner of the cabin, every cupboard and cabinet, springing the traps and emptying the poison into the bin. As long as I was there, I wasn't going to be responsible for the death of an innocent creature. The rats had no less right to be in the cabin than I had. The noise, along with my deliberations, kept me awake for many hours. Listening to the rats in the cupboard, gnawing on crackers, upending the open bags of rice, made me question still further my reaction to the leech. Why had my response been so extreme? What was the real root of my disgust? Where had the anger come from? And the violence? Why was I able to accept the rats, feeding themselves on the food that should have fed me, yet recoiled from the leech, following its instincts to precisely the same end? These thoughts came from the shadowed border between sleep and wakefulness, folding over upon each other, collapsing together into a dreamlike soup of impressions and ideas that merged at last into a united vision, a vision at once transcendent and monstrous. It was as if a curtain had been pulled aside, revealing the inescapable perversity of nature. To be born hungry, a belly that lives only to feed itself, alive only at the expense of other lives. Purposeless and interminable, compelled to live, to feed, only to make meat to feed some other starving belly. The pointlessness and horror of it was overwhelming. The hunger never satisfied. The hunger unto death. At the peak of the vision, I saw all life as nothing more than a grotesque sculpture of mouths devouring mouths devouring mouths, a multitude, an infinity, expressed as a single mouth devouring a single meal. And that meal was itself. I must have slept, for I dreamt, 
long, vivid dreams that I had no memory of on waking. Still, I felt them weighing on me like an old overcoat, heavy with melancholy and a nebulous longing. It had been raining while I slept, and the cabin was ripe with the perfume of the rainforest. This fragrance intermingled with the funk of my forgotten dreams, as though, for want of sleep, I had become porous and was both absorbing the moisture of the rainforest and at the same time spilling out into it. There was little breakfast to speak of. I rummaged in the kitchen for whatever scraps the rats might have overlooked, but all they had left was a scene of devastation and abandon. Rice was everywhere. Spilled from the upended bag, it was pulled in dry rivers on the laminate's work surface and sprayed across the kitchen floor like the dead husks of fallen stars. The cupboards themselves were bare of everything but crumbs, shredded boxes and the ubiquitous pepperings of dry turds. In the fridge, I found a small piece of cheese and the last apple. I tossed the cheese onto the deck for the possums and set out for my morning walk, eating the apple as I went. The morning was oppressively humid, thick with moisture from the night's rain and already pregnant with the heat of the coming day. Even at this early hour, it was too hot for clothes. I walked in nothing but my hiking boots and a pair of cut-off shorts. Unlike previous mornings, I had no plan, yet my feet seemed to know exactly where they were going. I took the main track through the gates of the National Park and down into the rainforest. Instead of turning up toward the lookouts, I continued to descend, leaving the path to follow the creek into the luscious nooks of the forest. I found a pool beneath the terrace of lazy waterfalls, where the canopy above was so thick that no sunlight could penetrate. I settled down in the cool gloom and pulled off my boots, sat on the moist edge with my feet in the water. It wasn't long before they found me there. Before I even reached the pool, several leeches had already attached themselves. I wasn't sure exactly how many. I could see one on my calf and another further up my thigh, both of them quivering as they drew blood into their expanding bodies. At least one had settled on my back, but there may have been others. Knowing they were on me, seeing them feed, the feelings of disgust arose again. But unlike the day before, I did not react. The emotions were still there, just detached somehow. Only another tangled shape within that body, with its mouth and its belly, with its hunger and fear and other drives of a distinctly animal nature. And more were converging, other leeches inching through the foliage, toward the bare white flesh, heads twitching on the end of undulant black stalks. They swivelled this way and that as of sniffing the air, sensing the promise of warmth and of nourishment. I felt the featherlight touches of tail suckers and mouths, the delicate end over end as the leeches made their ponderous climb, seeking out a space on which to attach, on which to feed. I must have cut a strange sight as I returned from the park that lunchtime. The track was busier than usual and I encountered many other walkers before I reached the cabin. Families, couples, lone hikers like myself. Every one of them recoiled when they saw me approach, flattening themselves against the edge of the path to clear the way. One man was so disturbed, he tripped over the snaking roots of a Watkins fig and nearly toppled into the foliage. On his, and on every face, that same look, the flaring nose, the downward pull at the edge of the lips, the unmistakable grimace of disgust. 
They talked, too, talked about me as I passed, as if I couldn't hear, as if I was in some way contrary to them. I heard one woman behind me wretch. I had to laugh. Hadn't my face been contorted by these same emotions only the day before? I felt for them. All they could see was the wild young man storming along the path, his eyes perhaps a little too wide, revealing a little too much white. They saw the expression, at once intense and serene, that encompassed a grin, uncomfortably twisted. They would have seen the body, bristling with the glistening black hairs that swelled and rippled and writhed as though with life of their own, pulsing shapes that dropped to the ground like rotten fruit, leaving thin ribbons of red to darken his shorts, streak his legs, and pull in the fluffy bands of his socks. I couldn't blame them for their feelings of horror and revulsion. They couldn't see beyond the mechanics. They lacked the vision. Although it was all downhill, the final stretch to the cabin seemed endless. I must have given away a fair bit of blood by then, for I felt giddy and weak. Each step took considerable effort. When I finally reached the cabin, having left a breadcrumb trail of engorged leeches that led all the way back to the forest, I was so drained that I flopped straight into bed. I hadn't even the strength to pull off my boots. I awoke later to the sound of rain drumming on tin. I had no idea what time it was. The light seemed to have leaked out of everything, creating an effect both shadowless and grey. It must have been evening, for I could hear the rats in the kitchen and feel the pinch of cold on my skin. The bed was soaked. I made to sit up, to put my legs out over the side of the bed, to stand, change out of my bloody shorts and into something warmer, perhaps scratch around in the kitchen for a bite. But I could barely sit up. Even that small movement made my head swim, and I lay there, feeling the world flip-flop around me. Then the itching began. Not the uncomfortable irritation that I'd felt the day before, but a seething anger in my arms and legs and chest. Had I been suspended from a thousand burning hooks and slowly pulled apart, it could not have been worse than this. I longed to scratch, but even that movement was too much to contemplate. My arms lay lifeless beside me on the blood-soaked sheets, as flaccid and impotent as the swollen bodies still squirming there. I think I began to cry then, for my body convulsed and my eyes were shut so tight that my head ached. It's hard to contemplate now exactly why I wept. Despair, perhaps, or regret. Perhaps it was the only means of escape from the pain which swarmed beneath my skin like a colony of fire ants. Whatever the reason, those tears were cleansing. They didn't take the pain away, but they took me out of myself, out of my body. They allowed me to let go of everything. And in that letting go I became weightless, unencumbered by the thoughts and feelings and memories that had bound me to myself. I felt as though I were floating upward, the itching and the weakness and the wetness now so dilute as to be almost imperceptible, completely overwhelmed by the greater flood of transcendence, of oneness, of interconnectedness with all things. There must have been nothing left in the kitchen worth eating, for, some time later, a rat came to visit me where I lay. Emboldened, perhaps, by my immobility, she hopped up onto the foot of the bed and perched on the toe of one of my walking boots. I watched her lift her head and sniff all around, teeth bared, nose twitching. The bed, I realised, must have smelt like a butcher's shop, 
of blood curdling as it dried, of meat that was just beginning to turn. She tiptoed down the ladder of laces and stopped at the bunched-up end of my sock, leaning out over my calf to take another sniff, not little sips this time, but long, questing inhalations. I barely felt the first bite, watching her little jaw at work, tugging, first tentatively, and then with incredible focus, at the ligaments of my lower calf, I experienced nothing. A distant pulling sensation, like someone unthreading a bootlace. Soon other rats began to pop up over the sides of the bed. They didn't take long to tuck in. Before long, they covered my legs, tails curling, pulling off strips with those coarse yellow teeth. They were unstitching me, one red ribbon at a time. And by then, I was too weak to even lift my head, let alone to sit up and sweep them away. And I wondered, would I even want to? I had shared my blood. Should I not share my flesh as well? I had always felt I had so much to offer, so much to give. But Sally never saw it that way, how good I could have been for her. She saw only a vacuum, an emptiness that emptied her. Her loss. She would never understand. I can see that now. Not like my new friends with their simple needs, so easy for me to satisfy. What would Sally think if she could see me now? I picture her, weeks, maybe months from today, returning to the cabin. The doors, once the threshold between the small but civilised inner space and the boundless incivility of wild nature, are now open wide. The smell of damp and decay is everywhere. Frogs, birds, lizards and the legion tiny marsupials have made their homes here, in the water pooling from the holes in the roof, in the branches that pierce the fly screens, amongst the rotting foam spilled from decrepit furniture, and in every one of the many bolt holes and crawl spaces that now perforate the cabin. Fungi, moulds and grasses bloom throughout. Like the veins of a great living organism, tree roots have burst through the mock linoleum floor, vines have ripped through the ceiling. Twisting, coiling, interwoven, they lead Sally to the living heart of the house, the bloody bedroom, and my parting gift. What will she think? How will she react to find, in that bed, which held us close so many nights, the hiking boots and the gleaming skeleton, so white against its flag of red, seething still, perhaps, with the life of a multitude, the centre of a living ecosystem? What will she think of me then? Inside the cabin all is grey. It's as though all colour has leached from the room, and whatever world still exists beyond. Even the crimson sheets are now just a deeper, darker shade of grey. It is neither night nor day, but a perpetual twilight, as though we are caught, my friends and I, hovering in a borderland between twinned worlds, light and dark. Satiety and hunger, numbness and pain, life and the absence of life. It is as poignant as a dream. And I can't help but wonder if this greyness exists without, in the room, in the insatiable gnawing of the rats, in the droning of the flies, in the silent procession of the many ants, or whether this absence of colour, of contrast or tone, is in fact mine, dimming, faltering fading unerringly to white.
I can hardly believe I have anything left to offer. Yet here we still are, all of us together, sharing this last meal. My true friends and I. That was J. Ashley Smith's Our Last Meal, as read by Tales to Terrify's old friend, Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is an award-winning short fiction author, editor, and narrator, recipient of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best New Talent in 2014. He has narrated stories for such venues as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Starship Sofa, and right here at Tales to Terrify. His science fiction, dark fantasy, and horror short stories have been published in numerous venues around the world, and together with Lee Murray, he co-edited the award-winning anthologies Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, and At the Edge. His novella, Tipuna Tapu, won the Paul Haynes Award for Long Fiction as part of the Australasian Shadows Award in 2017. Hounds of the Underworld, book one of the crime noir horror series, the Path of Raw, co-written with Lee Murray and published by Raw Dog Screaming Press, is his first novel. Book two, Teeth of the Wolf, is due for release in 2018. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. As always, thank you, Dan. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors, Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.